0: Tell you the truth, they kind of scared me a little bit. So I veered away from all them guys. And I think there's only a grade or two ahead of me. We'd partied a few times together, but I don't know. He was just a little bit too up.
1: Did he sell drugs? No. Did he do drugs?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. So, what all of you guys that sold did all of you like Rick? Did he do drugs as well?
0: Yeah, Ricky did drugs. That would be that's what got him in trouble.
1: So, he did a lot, is what you're saying. It got it, became a problem. Yeah. And what did he do?
0: So, he pre based with all the other guys at that time. I was dead set against coke, I thought it was the most drug in the world.
1: So you think that he got—that's maybe how he got in over his head, is he was doing more than he could pay for, essentially?
0: Yeah. Dipping into the pot?
1: All right. Did his um, family—well, let's start with the girlfriend. She lived with him. Did she know that he did drugs and and sold them?
0: Oh, yeah. She knew.
1: Here's why I'm asking you about the girlfriend. So he wasn't—they did not call him (laughs) in as missing for, like, 12 days. They didn't file a police report. So, what do you know why that is? I mean, I can understand why his parents didn't. If he didn't live with his parents, they may not have known he was missing for that long. Why did the girlfriend not call, uh, call the police before then?
0: Um, we all pulled disappearing acts. I pulled disappearing acts. I'd be gone up to a week at time. I mean, we all did it.
1: So that wasn't out of the ordinary then.
0: Yeah, that wasn't all the days missing was, you know, because most of us, is three, four days that we come home. Uh-huh. So the 12 days is probably hopeful thinking on somebody's part that he'd show back up. I kind of remember something being said at Howard's. <clears throat> it seemed like she stopped by at the Hobby Hut or something and said something a few times. But we didn't. I didn't think nothing of it.
1: So she mentioned it, like among friends. Like, have any of you seen Rick?
0: Yeah, that'd be an active search for Rick.
1: Okay, so that's interesting.
0: <laughs> and then well, they're definitely looking. I mean,
1: yeah, I was figuring that they were. You know, when it's that, I can so, sort of see how. Okay, if she thinks he went missing and maybe he went to pick up drugs or something, you don't necessarily want to get the the cops involved right away because. You don't know what you're going to find when you find him, and what if he's got a big pile of drugs with him? You know, like, I can see why she was probably hesitant. When the younger man asked his brother where he planned to bury the body, as one does when their sibling has just produced a dead body, the named suspect replied, up near Broman, near the 800 acres, referring to the land that their father cared for. Multiple people say the named suspect told them that's where he buried Rick, so that's likely why police searched it so many times. I'll get back at him. He can't screw me out of no weed. The named suspect said this maybe a month or so before Rick died, and continues to fall back on this even after the murder, telling someone else that Rick took a few hundred dollars and some pot from his house on the day of the murder which is a strange thing to say given you never told police that Rick had even been at your house on the day of the murder. I suspect that that's a detail police would like to hear more about if it was true, although I don't think we should be taking the word of the named suspect as gospel. But that alone would be considered sketchy, and it's probably the kind of inconsistency that quickly made him a suspect. It also feels like a convenient mistruth one you'd tell when your subconscious is trying to make excuses for why you did what you did. Why did this happen? And where did he do what he did to Rick? Whether he shot him or he stabbed him, and both are mentioned in the report as possibilities. The named suspect was known to have possession of a gun around this time and often carried a knife, described as a lock-blade boot knife. As proof of his propensity to also carry knives, I submit another police report, a couple years after Rick Atwood disappeared, involving the named suspect. January 7, 1985. Black male, 23 years old, 6 feet tall, wearing a black coat, black pants, grey boots, and a black hat, known to the victim. Victim stated that the subject chased him around the house with a hunting knife. This suspect was demanding $50 from him. The victim stated that the suspect had been at his residence approximately two hours. The victim had offered to loan this individual $25. The suspect was not satisfied and made a higher demand. When the victim refused, the knife threats ensued. The victim described the weapon as a hunting knife in a leather case carried in the suspect's pocket. He advised that a Port City cab had picked up the suspect. The police dispatcher checked with Port City cab and was advised that the suspect had walked away from the scene. Reporting officers were told by the victim that the suspect lived at the corner of Sheldon Avenue and Wealthy Street. Reporting officers started checking Wealthy Street for the subject. We observed a black male matching the description given by the victim. This subject was walking on Wealthy Street at Diamond Avenue. We were able to follow the tracks in the snow to the rear of 1005 Wealthy Street, Southeast. The suspect was apprehended at this location. He was immediately checked for weapons and none were found. We continued to follow the footprints in the snow to a barbecue grill located on the east side of the building. Reporting officer opened the grill and observed a hunting knife in a leather case. It was taken into evidence and tagged. The suspect was placed into the rear seat of the cruiser. Officer Crumb later opened the cruiser door to ascertain the suspect's name. The suspect lunged toward the officer. The suspect was grabbed and his jacket was torn. The suspect was then transferred to the city jail unit and charged with felonious assault. The suspect was photographed to document his clothing. Warrant was obtained and suspect was arraigned on charge of assault with intent to rob while armed. The suspect requested a court-appointed attorney and is being held on a $25,000 cash bond. Suspect presently out on bond for two other felony charges. What makes the story of his brother having seen Rick's body so compelling are the details passed on by multiple people, including the clothing Rick was wearing when he was seen in the trunk, down to the detail of his glasses and where the blood was on his clothes, or people being able to relay the story of how the named suspect got rid of Rick's car. Some dude wanted to buy it for 200 bucks. That's what someone heard the named suspect say. As the story goes, this guy was shown a picture of the car. He got the $200 in advance, told the dude where he could pick it up, but when he got to the location, it wasn't there. Which sounds ridiculous when you consider the context, but it actually happened. Well, sort of. And I imagine the fact that someone other than the named suspect knew that led the detective to believe that some of the witness's other information might be accurate, too. Based on a name and phone number that was written on the back of a business card that he took into evidence, Detective Miller tracked down and interviewed a man to ask if he recalled someone attempting to sell him a vehicle in the summer of 1983. This interview occurred a few months later, in February of 1984. The witness asked if the car in question was a brown Pontiac Trans Am, to which the detective said, yes, indeedy. Okay, so Detective Miller didn't say it exactly that way, but I'm certain that his cop's spidey sense at least felt yes indeedy. The car dude told his tale, and it went something like this. He worked second shift at a plant in Grand Rapids, and he saw the car on a work day, though he was sure it wasn't a Thursday because Thursday's payday, and he bowled on payday. He said he got out of work and stopped to see some friends at a local party store. He said that a black male in his 20s asked him about the availability of marijuana, and the discussion turned to a vehicle. He offered the car dude a vehicle for 800 bucks, saying that he had three other vehicles similar to it, although he said that he had left the title for this car in another car. So, he takes this car dude to see the vehicle, who described it to the detective as having rather shabby interior. He said that it was dirty and muddy. So let's stop here for a minute and understand where we are. Our named suspect, after getting rid of Rick Atwood's body, is now in Grand Rapids trying to sell his car. So this car dude said that because the man claimed that he had the title, he wrote his name and phone number on a business card and gave it to him. He said that they had maybe spent five or ten minutes together, the subject left, and he never heard from him again. When he was shown the business card that the detective had found with his name on it, Car produced a matching one from his own wallet. He said that he picked them up at work. This person claimed to have no further involvement with stealing the car or the murder that was being investigated. Here comes the interesting part. He was shown six pictures and was apparently unable to identify any one of them as the person who tried to sell him the vehicle. So a few things could be happening here. Number one, car dude is the type of guy who does not want to get jammed up in any situation involving police. He's not into snitching, and whether he recognized a picture or not, he's not going to say. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that he really did not recognize the person, because the person wasn't the named suspect. If he is, in fact, trying to get rid of Rick's car, is that him doing it? or someone else doing it for him. It's certainly possible that Car Dude wasn't the only Car Dude that night. The named suspect could easily have pulled this con on someone else, and even managed to get 200 bucks out of some other Porsche schlub. I think at some point the named suspect must have realized that without the title, this little plan to offload the dead guy's car was not going to work. Most people aren't going to hand you a couple Benjamins, offer a hearty thank-you-much-and-drive-off-with-their-new-car sans title. Maybe it took him a couple hours in his adrenaline-induced state to realize that he was going to need a plan B. I guess that's where calling the wrecker service the next day came into play. But I want to mention something here again. If the Trans Am was left in a hotel parking lot and that's how the named suspect allegedly arrived, who is driving him around Grand Rapids trying to offload the car? Surely he's not walking, is he? Or maybe he is. Or maybe he called a friend and they're riding all over Grand Rapids together. Maybe getting high because now they've got Rick's weed and his money, right? Who's the named suspect hanging out with in Grand Rapids a few hours after he has killed Rick and disposed of his body? Well, I'll tell you who that who is. That who is another person with first-hand information about this case. That who probably has a very interesting story to tell. I wonder if we'll ever hear it. Now I don't know about you, but if I ever murder someone, the first thing that I am not going to do is anything else illegal that gets me tossed in the pokey. And should I somehow get tossed in the pokey for something other than the murder that I've not yet been arrested for, I am probably not going to blab about the murder to everyone who gets within whiffing distance of me. I am flabbergasted to report that our named suspect was not quite so careful. A startling number of inmates came forward to police with information that they say was shared with them or that they overheard being shared by the named suspect. Now, cops have to take jailhouse informants with a grain of salt. First... Other people in a jam often try to get themselves out of that jam by giving up information on someone else, whether that information is truthful or complete and utter bullshit. So, from this group of questionable witnesses, a number of things were gleaned, including the named suspect telling someone, Rick ain't going to screw anybody out of no more weed. Another nugget suggested that the named suspect and his girlfriend had checked into the motel in Grand Rapids, and then he left her to meet with Rick. Essentially, this story suggested that he may have had a prior arrangement with Rick. Now, we know that Rick's blood was found all over and around the driver's seat of the car, which he would be driving if he picked up the named suspect, like he had already done earlier that morning. According to one inmate, from the story that the named suspect told, Rick had been talking crazy and putting him down and... So they're parked somewhere and he gets mad and he pulls out a gun and he shoots Rick in the side twice. Included in this retelling are painful details like Rick grabbing his side and doubling over after being shot. Coughing and then straightening up and looking at the guy who had just shot him. Presumably with the look on his face that said, what the fuck are you doing? The story about how he dragged Rick out of the Trans Am and put him in the trunk of the vehicle was reported multiple times and another story elaborated on the body being transported to a private property and being buried. It was also reported that the gun was disposed of elsewhere, buried in a different place than the body. One story that was relayed was about how the named suspect had stole Rick's dope and his money, which he was told was between thirty-five and 37000 that figure seems wildly higher than I would expect Rick would have at any given time, unless he was selling a whole lot more than some dime bags to locals. One would think that a guy with that much money would have paid his supplier back that 400 that he owed him. So I tend to disbelieve that amount. It's probably a lot closer to thirty-five or 3700 Now, some of the information could have been peppered with hyperbole by inmates hoping to gain favor, or it could have been the named suspect overselling his story when he relayed it the first time. But I have no doubt that he took whatever pot and money Rick had on him. That was the motive. Also, no money or pot were found in the vehicle when police located it in the parking lot. I think the reason why police may have believed a lot of what they were hearing from inmates is because it lined up with the things that they knew to be factually accurate, like how the named suspect drove the dead man's Trans Am back to the motel, where it would later be found, and they kept hearing the story of the named suspect getting a ride from someone out of town. That turned out to be true. Even minor details like him calling the wrecker service to pick up the vehicle and using a fake name, all of these details were coming back around to police from multiple witnesses, and some details were a little less minor, like how the named suspect's father knew about the murder, and had posted bond for the girlfriend when she was arrested after being questioned about the murder. That sounds like something you do when you know someone has information and you don't want them to share it. One story that jumped out at me was that his clothes were covered in blood and mud and that the girlfriend saw it. Well, of course they were covered in mud and blood, but imagine the implications of that. If that were the case, and his girlfriend, or former girlfriend, was waiting back at that motel, I find myself wondering what she thought of him clamoring into the room in the middle of the night, covered in the evidence of a homicide. Or maybe he snuck in quietly while she was asleep, and she never saw the clothes because he removed and disposed of them when he took a shower, all before she awoke. But it's also possible that she was in bed watching TV, when the only light in the room reflecting a bluish tone across the small space was suddenly split by a gash of light from the hallway when he entered the hotel room late that night, dirty and covered in blood. What would you say if that happened to you? What would you do? The named suspect bragged about how police had looked for years for the body and hadn't found it yet. They never would, he said, because... It was buried on private property, and they couldn't get permission to search for it. Imagine having the balls to admit that to people, to say it out loud after you've killed someone. They'll never get onto that property. They'll never get a search warrant. Well, I'm going to tell you a few things about that. That 800 acres in Broman, if I'm reading the report right, that's land maintained by the U.S. Forestry Service. As far as private land goes, that's only as private as Uncle Sam wants it to be, and that, I suspect, is why it's been repeatedly searched. Private property, however, like, mm, let's say, your dad's house and the remote acreage surrounding it, well, you need a search warrant to search that. And to get a search warrant, you need probable cause. Here is a quick and easy primer with a touch of schoolhouse rock vibe on search warrants put out by Command College, which touts itself as a graduate school for public safety executives.
2: Okay, so there's some really bad dudes selling crack out of this house, and everybody who lives around there is like, those are really bad dudes, and they're selling crack. And you want to do something, but you can't just go break down their door and arrest them and search their house because there's like this constitutional rights thing that says so, right? So you could just go ask them, like, do you mind if we just, you know, come in and look around and see if they say yes, and who knows, maybe they would say yes, but then just as you're about to head down the hallway and go into the bathroom where all the good stuff is, they'll be all, you know, we changed our alleged minds, and you have to leave, and you'd be like, bummer. But then you just have to leave knowing all the crack and guns and stuff are still there, and the really bad dudes would still be there selling crack, and the neighborhood is still like, those are really bad dudes. So instead you're like, I need a search warrant. We'll talk more about it later, but for now, just know that you need to describe the house where the bad dudes live, what you're looking for, like crack and guns and bombs and stuff, how you know the stuff is there, like some good dude posing as a bad dude was there and saw it, and how you know the bad dudes even live there, like their name is on the cable bill or their cars are always there or something. Like I said, we'll talk more about it later. Oh yeah, and there's this hero statement thing. That's just like a list of everything you've done that lets a judge know that you have a clue. Okay, so now you have this warrant, but it's nothing until you get a judge to look at it, and he'll be like, that looks good, dude, and he'll maybe ask you a question or two, and then he'll sign it, and now you have the legal right to go search the house with the really bad dudes and the guns and the crack and the bombs and stuff. So now you get your homies together, and you're like, we're going to go search this house, and you all figure out who's doing what, like who's going to knock on the door, and who's going to watch the back door, and stuff like that. And when everybody feels good about it, and you all know exactly what house it is and what you're going to do, you go do it. You search the house, and you find the crack and guns and bombs, and you arrest the really bad dudes, and the neighbors are like, yay, and the bad dudes are like, bummer, and then you call it a night. And then sometime in the next 10 days or so, you go back to the judge, and you're like, your honor, dude, we searched the house, and we found the stuff, and here's the warrant returned. And he's like, nice going, dude, and he signs the return, and the evidence is cataloged, and the world is just a little better place. A search warrant is basically a
1: document approved by the court that gives law enforcement permission to search a specific place for a specific thing. Now, you hear people talking about the four corners of a warrant. That refers to the actual paper that the warrant is written on. Within its four corners are the factual statements put forth by a member of law enforcement that explains to the judge the facts related to why they believe they should be able to search for and will find what they're looking for. The facts and circumstances contained within the four corners of the warrant meet the standard when they would warrant, quote, A man of reasonable caution to believe that the items sought to be seized were in the stated place. That is probable cause. They have to have reason to believe that what they're looking for is there. And that paper is law enforcement showing a judge why they believe that to be. So let's say the place in question is a private property where we're hoping to find the body of a missing person. Well, first things first, where on the property? This is not some fishing expedition when you're looking for a body. You need credible information about where you expect that body to be and information about why you believe that to be true. You can't just drive a couple backhoes onto someone's property and start digging until you find something. That's not how this works. Also, information that's presented as probable cause must be current information that exists at the time the request is made for the warrant. An officer can't request a search warrant based on something that they saw a month ago or a year ago. And you can't get a warrant on hearsay evidence, nor can you base a search warrant on an anonymous tip or off something that your granny says that they heard someone else say. As far as I can see, police never got a search warrant for the property of the named suspect's father, even though multiple witnesses say that they heard or were told Rick's body was brought there in the trunk of his car. I was also told by someone who spent some time on that property that the named suspect's father told him that police had never searched it. That would be a strange conversation to occur if you knew nothing about a body, wouldn't it? I found that a little odd. It almost seemed as if it was taunting from the father of the named suspect. Apparently, no one who saw Rick's body, and there were a few alleged to have done so, none of them came forward and said, Yeah, I saw Rick dead in the trunk, and I know where his body was taken. But I will tell you what warrants police did get. Police got warrants for handwriting samples to compare to the writing on the motel registration with that of the named suspect. In that case, police spent two frustrating hours with him trying to get a sample where he painstakingly made every effort to disguise his normal handwriting. That doesn't sound guilty at all, does it? They also got warrants for phone records, which played a big part in them getting as far as they did with this case. Actual calls from the motel room to his father's residence, and that call to his brother to arrange a ride. They also got a search warrant for the DNA of the named suspect, which did, in the end, put him in Rick Atwood's car. Unfortunately, he admitted to being in the car, and that doesn't prove he killed anyone so that particular piece of information wasn't very helpful, at least with regard to where they got it. But let's talk about that broken shovel handle in the trunk. Well, it might not mean much if he wore gloves when he allegedly buried Rick's body, but it sure couldn't hurt to see if his DNA is in there. If he or anyone who assisted him touched that shovel, maybe when it was grabbed from a garage, their DNA could be on it. That item was only in recent years sent in for testing. It might not even be processed yet. I have seen instances where it takes years for DNA tests to come back on certain items. By way of explaining that, the DNA testing in this case has evolved over the years as technology made it possible to do more advanced types of testing on the existing evidence. Let's just say that if someone's DNA is found on a broken shovel handle, that was found in a trunk of a car, that had a lot of the victim's blood in it, that person is going to need a real good reason for that DNA being there. That would be a game-changer. But I'm not sure that it would be enough. You see, cases are built like homes, brick by brick, piece of evidence by piece of evidence, and no single thing will do it. Right now they have quite a few bricks, but finding Rick's body would be the game-changer. One piece of property has been searched repeatedly and another, a private residential property, has not. But that piece of property, it won't stay in the hands of its owner forever. Lots of cases get solved when homeowners die and the new owners agree to let police do a search. To get a search warrant to search private property while it remains in the hands of family members, they would need a first-hand account of a body being on that property. This person said so-and-so isn't enough. That person saying he told me isn't enough. Someone else saying, well, he told me this or he told me that. It's not enough. I saw so-and-so. That is what they need. Someone who was there would need to man up and fess up. And if there's no one with the stones to do that, then police wait. And let me tell you, folks, police can be pretty patient in situations like this. Do not think for one moment that they've forgotten. They have not forgotten. I have documents and reports right here that are dated within the last two years where quite a bit was done on Rick Atwood's case to move it forward, particularly with regard to DNA evidence. I've spoken to multiple people who have been questioned by police in the last few months. They have not forgotten. They're still trying to get justice for Rick, and when one set of investigators retires, cases like this get passed along to the next batch of fresh-faced, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed investigators hungry to solve a case that has eluded justice for so long. They haven't forgotten. They will never forget. You can believe that. Stay tuned.
0: I went down to Chicago. I didn't know where else to go. I was paid to shoot a man. I just shot him and then I ran. I didn't even get the money I owed. I turned around and took to the road. Been wandering to Ephraim, and fro, and me my way to Chicago. I see the fire of the battle and bullets fly like an arrow. I see the trouble in the po' eyes. I see his soul
2: take to the skies.